You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue in our series uh, through the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Creation to Restoration. If you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and not particularly what I have to say or Pastor Ryan has to say or anybody else who would stand here in this pulpit, but we want to know what God has said and particularly what he has revealed about himself in the Bible and through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we come to the Bible to submit our lives to it. I want you to hear and respond. I want you to actively engage with God's word. I don't want you to sit there passively, but I want you to hear God's word so that you may respond to it. If you're not a believer today, I hope that this is a safe place for you to see who God is, to see who the church is, and ultimately, I pray, we pray that you will give your life to Jesus Christ. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those hard-covered Bibles and uh, in, in front of you in the pew back and follow along with us. Turn to page uh, 14 to do that. Let me just tell you, uh, many of you know, but being a father is an amazing thing. Being a father is wonderful. Uh, there's so many experiences that I've had even just three and a half years of, of Graham being born and then Connor being born that these are cherished moments. Now, don't get me wrong. There are days in which I would like to uh, maybe let him be on his own for a little while, but there are days in which we enjoy time together. Yesterday, we went to the pool as a family, and we were able to enjoy just being together there as a family. And when my sons look at me, there is something different. There's something special in which how they look at me. And, and I might think of the question, what does Graham and eventually what does Connor think? What do they believe about me? What, what do they believe about me? Am I going to provide for them? Am I going to provide a safe place for them to grow? Are my arms a place in which they can come to when things are difficult? Yesterday, as we're playing in the pool, Graham uh, likes to jump off the side. And for whatever reason, it changes every year whether he's willing or not to jump off the side. So we have to coax him to get him to come back to start jumping off the side again. He loves to. you just got to give him a little encouragement. Well, in that moment, Graham believes that I'm going to catch him when he comes into the pool. I full well, you know, that the pool, the water is going to catch him. He's fine. He's got his clothes on. There's nothing to be afraid of. But in that moment, he trusts me. He trusts me to catch him. And church, let me be very honest. What we believe about God, our Father, will determine our faith. I shared this with our missional community a couple weeks ago. As we've looked at Abraham's life, there are a couple things that help us think rightly how to follow Jesus. And it's this, what do you believe about God? 
What do you believe about yourself? And what do you believe about your circumstances? Those are the three questions that I think we should all ask ourselves. What you believe about God will determine your faith. What you believe about yourself will determine your faith. And yes, even what you believe about your circumstances will determine your faith. In many ways, it will define it. So what do you believe about God this morning? That's the question that should be in your mind as we have just heard God's word. And now as we walk through it, here are the things that I want you to see. Here's the main idea of the text. In a test of faith, Abraham's obedience is displayed in God's provision of a sacrifice. And now if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've called on his name, if you're walking in his ways, what should you do today? We talk as a church about making mature disciples. Here today, we stand at the crossroads of walking into maturity. The testing of our faith strengthens our trust in God's provision for our salvation. The testing of our faith strengthens our trust in God's provision for our salvation. Now, you might ask, what is faith? Is faith blindly just following, just walking off a cliff? I just have to have faith. No. We do not ask you to walk into those doors every Sunday morning and check your minds at the door. No. Faith, as the author of Hebrews 11 tells us, is a reality of something we hope for. And not just something that we, yeah, I hope that happens. I hope that Carolina wins a basketball game. No, no. I'm saying I hope. I have assurance that something is going to happen for me and for you. That's what faith is. And so much so, it's something that we haven't seen yet. But it's real and it's tangible. When we believe it, when we hope it, that becomes our reality. You see, church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a matter of faith. But it's also a matter of reality in which our Lord got up out of the grave. And you see, God is pleased when you express faith in him. Not just one time. Not just when we come to faith in which we, are, we experience God's mercy and kindness in the gospel and we then follow his ways and we walk in obedience. Not just that time, but it's our faith. Every single day, God is pleased. And sometimes God will examine your faith. And I don't know how many of you like to go to the doctor. I personally don't. I don't like going to the doctor because they do things that hurt most of the time. It's it's unpleasant. It can be unpleasant. Sometimes it's easy. It's physical. You walk, walk in, walk out, boom, it's fine. But oftentimes it's difficult. When God examines our faith, oftentimes it's like going to the doctor. The question still remains, what do we believe about him, ourselves, and our circumstances? The truth that the testing of our faith strengthens our trust in God's provision for our salvation. That's the truth that I want you to see this morning. And I want us to to dive into the story. And so I I didn't break the text down. I I don't have three points. I don't have any of that. I have one truth, one thing that I want you to take away today. And I want us to steep into God's word. And walk through it. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to follow along with me. I want you to read and look down at your Bibles. Look down at verse 1. 
after these things. So Isaac has been born. The promised son has been born. They've enjoyed him for almost 10 years. 10 years. God tested Abraham. Now, church, this should inform. We know that this is a test, but we may not lessen the impact of God's words here. We know it's a test. Israel knew it was a test of Abraham, but Abraham did not. Abraham believed that this is exactly what God was asking him to do. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Abraham knows God's voice. Abraham knows God's voice. They have a relationship, a relationship that's been tested over years, over many circumstances. Abraham knows who God is. It is in that relationship that now he hears verse 2. Take your son, he said, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. When God first called Abraham, he called him to do three things. He called him to, to be in a relationship with him through ups and downs. God calls Abraham to do three more things now. First, it was to leave his father's home, his kindred, his land. But now God asks three more things. He wants him to take his son. He wants him to go to the mountain that he directs him. And he wants him to offer Isaac to him. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God asked Abraham to leave his past. And now, God is asking Abraham to leave his future in God's hands. God calls us to give up everything for him. We don't, church, we don't get to hold on to things. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we relinquish every part of control that we ever thought we had. God has a right, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, to take anything away from us. The question is, do you believe he's worth it? That you will offer up any dream, anything, any material, even your best and most dearly loved thing. Are you willing? God tells him to take his son. Ten times in this passage, he says, son. He says, your only son, the one you love. Notice how he gets specific and shocking. It builds See, here in our English Bibles, it doesn't do a, a good job. It says, the, your son, the one you love, Isaac. It puts Isaac right in the middle. Actually, in the original language, Isaac is at the end because it's building to that point. Your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. This would be shocking. It's the final test of Father Abraham. God says to go to the mountain that, he, that I will tell you about and do what? To offer him as a burnt offering. God is asking Abraham to do something that Abraham never imagined. It should be shocking to your ears. It should confront us. It was shocking to Israel when they heard it. Would Abraham cling to his son whom God said was the future, and not just Abraham's future, but the future of the world in which the seed of promise would come who would crush the head of the serpent. It isn't just Abraham's hope. It's the hope for the entire world. 
And God says, will you trust me with this son? The question for us, though, church, is will we obey God? Those who love God don't hold anything back from him. If we are to be true worshipers of God, it will will involve the willingness to offer whatever is dearest and most treasured, even when we don't understand. You see, a part of faith is saying that you don't understand everything. In times in which God has called us to live a certain way, sometimes we don't understand And that's okay, because if we understood everything, that would either mean we're God, which we know we're not, or it wouldn't be faith. Let me just say here, in verse 3, I'm astonished at Abraham's obedience. Look there. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him about. Abraham knew that God had promised the future through Isaac and that God asked him to sacrifice him. Abraham could not reconcile the two together, but he obeys. Abraham had pleaded before. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleaded with his character. God, would you really kill all these people? What if there are 50, what if there are 40, 30, 10 righteous people? Would you do that? Abraham pleads for him. But there's no pleading. There's no contending. Abraham simply, absolutely, and quickly obeys the Lord. Now, is Abraham not wondering? Did he not go to sleep that night, laying in the bed, wondering, what has God called me to do? How am I going to do this? What Abraham believes about God will determine his faith. And here's the thing, church. We talk a lot about making mature disciples here, but let me be very clear. There is no category whatsoever for someone who say they believe in Jesus, but do not follow in his ways. Abraham demonstrates a complete faith through his obedience. I'm not saying that obedience saves us. What I'm saying is the faith that is alone through grace is never alone and is accompanied by our works and our obedience so you may ask why does God test us is he cruel no he's not cruel he's kind is God out to get you absolutely not he is not vindictive God tests our faith to give us an opportunity to reveal the extent of our faith display our loving obedience to him and reveal the righteousness that we've been given because of his kindness and grace. Verse 4, on the third day, so it take, they leave day one, they travel day two, on day three they get there, they see the mountain. How many times do you think Abraham thought about, ah, I can just turn around and go back now? Surely this is all God wanted. I'm pretty sure if I just go back, he's going to come back and say, hey, you passed the test. There's a lot of time over three days, Abraham had to persevere in his, in his obedience. He had to trust God. This was not a rash decision. He had three days to think about what he was about to do. Now, now what's also important, Mount Moriah is an important place. We know that it was the mountain that the temple of Jerusalem was built 
It was conquered by Caleb. It was purchased by King David and called Mount Zion. The son Solomon built the temple there. And we know in the New Testament, Jesus cleanses the temple in that same place. And he says, tear down this temple and in three days, I will build it back. What's Jesus talking about? He's not talking about literal brick and mortar. He's saying that he himself is the temple. And when he dies, he will be raised three days later. What I want you to understand, even now, in the first 22 chapters of of the book of the Bible, this mountain is a mountain of resurrection. This mountain is a place where life and death happen, but where life wins. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. This is what I mean. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham doesn't know anything other than what God has told him to do. He doesn't know how, but he believes that God will keep his promises, that this son will be the son who has children, who will then impact the world and bless the world. Abraham doesn't know how, but he believes that Isaac will return with him down that mountain. You see, Abraham has faith in God, so much so that even death cannot stop God from giving and providing his promises. Faith is something extraordinary in which Abraham, he doesn't know how. He is not aware of resurrection like we are. We talk about that term just like it's normal. It's like it happens every day. But Abraham doesn't know that. He believes. Abraham's come a long way, hasn't he? As we've looked over these 11 chapters, has his faith not been a journey? We've seen him pass the test. We've seen him fail miserably multiple times. But in this final test, Abraham obeys and he trusts God. Faith in God is a process. It's a process. And praise God that it is. Because I can think in my own life how often I have failed these kinds of tests. And I think you can probably think of times in which you believe you have failed these tests test but faith is a journey faith is a process becoming like Jesus is a process and here's the truth God will not leave you where you are when when Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife God could have said nope I'm done can't can't deal with him anymore but God didn't do that God, God cared and helped Abraham grow that's what we get to experience It is that faith now in verse 6. We see Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. And so Abraham and Isaac make their way up this mountain. Verse 7, then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? As I told you at the beginning, Isaac could be between 10 to 14 years old. He seems to be very aware of the process. Isaac has seen his father sacrifice a lamb before. He knows that there has to be a lamb. Here's here's the truth, church. Worship demands sacrifice. For us to worship God rightly, there must be a sacrifice made. 
And Paul picks up on this idea in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Isaac knew he could not go up on that mountain and worship God unless there was a sacrifice. We don't get to walk into these doors unless Jesus has given his life for you and me. Church, we don't get to walk through those doors and go through the motions and think everything is fine. We offer ourselves in response to what Jesus has done. We offer our lives, our whole bodies, our full selves as a living sacrifice. In response to what God has done. The question is, what do we believe? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about about ourselves? And what do we believe about our circumstances? Because every week we come in through those doors with circumstances that have bombarded us all week. Are we going to offer ourselves, all of ourselves, to God as a sacrifice? I'm struck by Abraham's response in verse 8. He answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. How else is a father supposed to respond to his child when he knows that his son's going to die? The two of them walked on together. It's most likely that Isaac in this moment realizes that he's the sacrifice. We don't know for sure, but most likely he understands and he walks on with his father. He walks on to that place where God had directed them. Now, sometimes, here's the thing Moses writes in Genesis, he'll write in years, weeks, or days, and even sometimes hundreds of years, as we saw in Genesis 1. But look how Moses slows down and focuses our attention here in these next verses, starting in verse 9. When they arrived at that place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. It is in this moment that true and complete faith is demonstrated by Abraham. He had committed his whole heart to obey God and give everything over to him, no matter the cost, because he trusted that God would provide. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. Notice the urgency in which the angel calls. Abraham, Abraham, stop. And all I can think about is when he hears that, he said, here I am, Lord, please stop me from this. I do not want to do this, but I'm willing. The angel said, do not lay a hand on that boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God. And since you have not withheld your only son from me, real faith demands obedience. And obedience displays real faith. 
This is what fearing God means. It doesn't mean that we're scared of God. It means that we obey God because we trust him. And it's now clear that Abraham believes. And, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, picks up on this in his argument about what real faith is. James says, it's not, that fa- it's not only that faith saves you, it does, but faith is a catalyst for faithful living. James writes in chapter 2, verse 21, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? James is not saying that Abraham was made righteous in this moment. He was saying he has revealed his righteousness because he did not withhold his son. Abraham believed. But what did he believe? What did he believe? Abraham believed that God would provide a sacrifice just like he told his son Isaac. So here's the thing church. When we believe that the Lord will provide, that enables us to be true worshipers who sacrifice anything and everything. All that we have, all that we desire, if we believe that God will provide, that will enable us to live a life of worship and obedience without reservation. And probably with tears down his face, Abraham looks, to, he looks up, verse 13, and he, he sees a ram. That's a male lamb. Caught in the thicket by the horns. And many scholars think it's just in that moment. Just in that moment. As God stops him, he looks back, and that ram gets caught in the thicket. God has provided. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. This ram is now offered as a substitute a burnt offering instead of Isaac. Abraham has been given sight to his faith that God would provide. It is now a reality that God has provided the sacrifice at just the right time. And look at what Abraham does. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. The Lord will provide provide. That's where we get our phrase Jehovah Jireh. It is at this mountain in which Jehovah Jireh takes on its true meaning, that our God will provide. He will give everything needed. He is the God who provides. And it's hard to imagine how Abraham and and, and Isaac embrace each other in this moment. Once they've made this sacrifice, I I, I can imagine the tears down their face and that they have experienced God in a way that we will not, may not know until Jesus returns. But in that moment, God speaks to Abraham one last time. This is the 35th and final time God speaks to Abraham. He says in verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself... I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars and on the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because, they have, because you have obeyed my command. Now again, 
where the future is heading. Abraham's blessing isn't only for him. This blessing has a far-reaching effect as God wants to bless the nations through Abraham and Isaac and ultimately the people of Israel so that they may know who God is, that he is the God who will provide, that he is Jehovah Jireh. And the blessing zooms in, though. It zooms in on that seed. The son, he says, your seed, your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. Now, I tell you when I think the CSB gets it right. I, I don't, they make a, a, a translation here that I don't think is helpful. Literally, it says your offspring, singular, will possess the city of his enemies. I think it's singular. There, there's an impact for the plural. I'll get to that in a moment. But I think this is singular. It's talking about the seed. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The same seed who will crush the head of the serpent. It is that seed who will conquer the gates of his enemy. Well, who is that seed? Let me just be up front. This is messianic. This is talking about Jesus. We trace the seed from Isaac to Judah to David and so on through Israel until we get the Messiah in the flesh, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. And we know, church, that God has revealed Christ throughout all the scriptures. Right? In Luke, Jesus says that the scriptures concern himself. And we talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But in this passage, Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is the fulfillment of so many things through this passage. So on the screen, you're going to see Jesus the better. Jesus is the better beloved son. When Jesus is baptized... God speaks as this is my son, my beloved son, who I am well pleased. Jesus is the better beloved son. Jesus is the better only son. Jesus is the only son that John speaks about in John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he would give his only son. Jesus has better trust in his father's plan. When Jesus is in the garden and he asks the Father, is there any way to remove the cup of judgment from him? And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the lamb that's led to the slaughter, like Isaiah 53. Jesus carries the wood on his back, but it's a wooden cross. Jesus is the better ram the substitute sacrifice, God's provision for our salvation. As, the, as John the Baptist says, there's the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. And is that singular seed, Jesus, who possesses the gates of his enemies, that we also share in his victory over sin and death, and Jesus tells Peter, on this profession of faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, church, we have victory. You see, you may be wondering, how in the world could I have that faith? Well, we can have that faith because we've seen Jesus. We know him. We know that he is God in the flesh, was killed for our sin, and was raised three days later, and now he reigns in victory. It is that Jesus.
that we get to experience and know that we, we have been provided for. Now, let me be very clear, church. It would be wrong to believe that Abraham earned God's blessing here. It's quite the opposite. God, in his kindness, decided to bless Abraham. He called Abraham. Abraham responds. In this moment, we see the power of God's kindness and blessing. It transforms those who believe in God and his promises. We do not earn God's blessing. You can't earn it. In response to God's kindness, though, we submit our lives to Jesus. We submit our lives in a way that we obey and that we trust him over all things. And then we don't come to him with closed fists, but we come to him with open hands and say, Lord, everything is yours. Everything I am and all that I have, it's yours. And look at what Abraham does. I'm an amazing chapter. And look how it ends in verse 19. Abraham went back to his young men. They got up and went together to Beersheba. So they did exactly what Abraham said they would do. They both came back together. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. Now, there are a few verses here after this uh, story. Moses ends this chapter, one of the most amazing chapters in all the Bible, with an interesting note starting in verse 20. He ends with Abraham's brother, Nahor, who we've not heard since early, earlier in Genesis. It's with his genealogy. And what's interesting to know is that Nahor has 12 sons. He even has a granddaughter. You would think at first glance, Nahor, he's got the promise. He's got 12 sons. Surely his family is where the seed will come from. But no, God only needs one son. He only needs one seed to bring about his promise. He doesn't need a big family. It is one son in which God provides salvation for the whole world so that all the families of the earth may be brought into God's family. God only needs one. And it is in this person, Jesus Christ, that we place our trust. And so if you've never heard about Jesus... Gosh, he is God's provision for our salvation. He was perfect, sinless. Gave his life for you and me. Was mocked and ridiculed and beaten and hung on a cross. They mocked him and said, call down your legion of angels. And we all know that Jesus could have done that. But he submitted his life. He trusted God's plan. Will you trust God? Maybe for the first time this morning. Will you offer up what is most dear to you? Knowing that in the end, God will provide for you. Being a father is one of the most amazing things that I've ever experienced. And I love my boys like nothing else in this world. And to be honest, I did not know how, how I would do reading and preaching through this passage but it's this love for my children when I compare it to God's love that I see just how much he loves me and he loves you. God gave his only son. 
And Paul says in Romans 8.32, If God did not withhold his son, but gave him up for us all, why should we worry? Why should we fret? Why should we cower? We shouldn't. But because the God of the universe who made you, whom we sinned against, has given everything so that we can know him again. Will you respond in trust that our God has provided everything that we need for salvation? Pray with me. God, we come to you this morning astonished at faith, astonished at Abraham's faith, astonished at Jesus' trust in your plan, astonished at what it took for you to to bring us back into relationship. God, when I look over my own life, I see that there have been times in which I have failed these kinds of tests. But I'm encouraged to know that Abraham, as you walked with him, even though he failed, it is your provision that strengthened his trust in you. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church, that you strengthen our faith, that you strengthen us together as your family so that we may take that news of the gospel around every part of Youngsville, Wake Forest, every part of North Carolina, and all over the world. Because it's this news that changes everything. And God, I pray for our church that we will be a church that we have deep and strong faith about what you're going to do. No matter the days ahead, no matter what comes knocking at our door, we trust you because you have provided your son for us. It is in that son, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.